The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. People in New Zealand, Karen Walker is a household name as a designer and business person, famous for women's clothing, the jewellery, perfume, sunglasses, and pioneering powerful fashion brand partnerships like her range of Razine paint colours. But Karen Walker is not just a significant figure in New Zealand. She's a fixture on the Business of Fashion's list of 500 most influential figures in fashion worldwide. The brand's sunglasses are worn by some of the world's most famous stars, Rihanna, Taylor Swift, LeBron James. And when they show at New York Fashion Week, their show would be front page of style.com. The brand has partnered with some of the world's biggest retailers, Uniqlo in Japan, Anthropology in US. They have about a thousand stockists worldwide, and the sunglasses are reported to be a $35 million a year business. This is success on a scale that maybe not that many people in New Zealand totally grasp, and it hasn't happened overnight. Over 20 years, Karen and her partner Mikhail and her teams have created a real global super brand. And to learn a little bit about some of the steps on the way, about what it takes, Karen joins me today. So uh, apologies for a bit of an epic intro, um, but I think it's just really interesting to get some of that context out there about the scale. Um, how, how do you describe the Karen Walker business these days? Is it something that you know you'd planned to track like this? Uh, good morning. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we're a business of ideas. That's ultimately what we make, and those ideas uh, end up in the physical form at some point. But really, I don't think of us as manufacturers or makers of any kind. We partner with good people to do to actually turn our ideas into physical objects. And that's, I always think, what we actually create is ideas and thoughts. And uh, it's, been, it's fun. What led you to start up? Had, had you always had a dream to have your own business? Yeah, you know, in a very naive way, in a kind of 15-year-old kind of, kind of way. It, it, you know, it started with $100 and a bit of fabric, and I made a shirt for a friend who was in a band, and then other people saw it and wanted the same shirt. So, yeah, it was a very cottagey and organic and and very naive um, but it was really just a reaction to um, to me not being able to find me and my friends not being able to find the kind of product we wanted you know the landscape is so different now between when I started with a hundred dollars and now uh, we've been through the biggest revolution the world's ever known and the lands- I mean the landscape's totally different now to what it was five minutes ago let alone 25 years ago now 
you're competing against every single brand in the world, whether it be like some hip little vintage store in the back streets of Aoyama or Uniqlo or Prada. You know, you're competing against everybody in the world all the time. But at the same time, your audience is everybody who's interested in fashion and ideas. So the audience is bigger and the comp- no, competition is bigger. The um, infrastructure around fashion back um, when you began was different as well. As With that protectionist age, there were um, a lot more makers and a, a bigger mm. industry here. And that's kind of come apart. But at the mm. same time, um, there's more choice now. That's right. And uh, I mean... I was pleased to see the back of protectionism. I think a lot of people were and a lot of people had hurt, but that's just what happens when there's change. Country was out of sync with the rest of the world and it was a you know it needed it needed that. But yeah, I remember speaking to somebody who'd been in the industry a long time, you know, sort of the early nineties and he was in the fabric business and he had he'd been in the fabric business from like the nineteen fifties. So he'd had like thirty years of protectionism. He was one of the few guys with a license to import fabric. And if you had a license to, you know, if you knew the right guy and you had the license to import the fabric, you were sweet. And he had a, you know, $20 million house and a Rolls Royce in the driveway. And uh, he said to me one time, at some point in the like late 70s or something, somebody had cancelled an order they placed with him. Uh, it was docking in the, on the ship. It was on the ship. It was docking that morning at the port. And it was 20,000 metres of chartreuse polyester. And... And there's no reason why anybody in the world would need 20,000 metres of chartreuse polyester. They're they're probably still uh, selling it at Centrepoint Fabrics today. (laughs) Well, uh, so the guy guy cancelled it this morning, uh, that morning, 9am, and by 11am he'd sold it to somebody else and he was still on the golf course for lunch. No way. Yeah, because it was just like, there was nothing you could buy, so you took what you were given. Yeah, actual licences to print money. Actual licences to print money, and I guess that's what I came in reacting against. What was it like to actually um, to, to take on the world pre-internet for fashion? God, you're making no. me sound <laughs> so ancient. Ah, not wanting what to at all. What was it like when you but lived in the cave? It's only 15 years ago that we didn't have Google as part of our daily life. Oh, so, God, you know, like that, great like days, Google, know. Google didn't exist, so it's not a long time. No, but... You know, there's a generation who don't understand that, Simon. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, it was totally different. You couldn't, uh, you know, if you, if you wanted to know about stuff, you had to get on a plane. Mm-hmm. Now you just, you know, go on Pinterest, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Vogue.go runway or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's a very different landscape. And uh, um, our point of view was always our competition wasn't the guy across the road. We always wanted to be a global brand. Yeah, very naively um, thought that we could do it and just kind of went out there and and did it with no proof or or actually any sort of backup to that 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 was possible. Um, And I think now a lot of people, when they go into business, that's their first thought, that Mm. they will be a global business. Mm. Um, And if you want to work in a certain type of product you have to be so you can't get to a, a scale in a, in a very small market like this exactly no no scale in a place no this size if you're trying to do yeah. anything that um is 100 percent new you yeah, know if you're not right. going to be taking right. the chartreuse polyester that yeah. is given to you and turning it into something expected yeah and that's why we uh very early on looked to the international landscape because I realised I could I could do it if I wanted to do what I wanted. 
I could have a business in this market at a certain scale, but that if I took it globally and spoke to that same 1% of 1% of the population on a, in a more global perspective, then it could be a bigger business. And so that was kind of the plan from very, very early. What were some of the, the turning points for you? Um, I mean, there are a couple of um, wonderful stories that I've heard about the brand, you know, like the um, the pants sold at Barney's to Madonna kind of story or the um, the big in Japan story where these, <laughs> these, I saw that wonderful article in FQ of all of the fans in Japan who send you um, fan, yeah. fan mail. And yeah. uh, it, it, you know, the well, Japanese, now yeah. nothing beats Japanese fan mail. Mm. It's quite insane. Yeah, how, how, um, so what, what were some of the turning points and how did you establish some of those kind of um, outposts, I guess, for the, the Karen Walker brand? Um, you know, it's, I always think of building, that when you're building a brand or building a business, I always think of it like coral. You know, and you, you know, coral, you look at a piece of coral and it looks like one thing, but it's actually millions of little animals that have all come together, millions of tiny, tiny things. You don't see it growing, uh, but it does. But it's tiny, tiny, tiny steps. So we've never had a huge sort of voila moment when, you know, the big thing happened. It's been built on millions of small wins um, and quite a lot of small failures as well. But it's just those, those, that, those lots and lots and lots of the small wins all building up. And one day you look at it and you go, oh, my God, we've got this global brand. Mm. And you don't even know, really, you can't pick one thing. You can't even pick a hundred things. It's a million things. Um, but yeah, you know, Madonna wearing the pants, that was awesome. But um, it's been like a million things like that. I, I guess it's been the, awesome. those are the things where what you're doing just breaches up into the public consciousness because there, there are, you, you know, not not mm. every time a celebrity buys a pair of pants gets into the paper, but mm. that one time... Oh, it kind of does these days, yeah, yeah. though, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or even if they get snapped on their... their if they've popped it up on their Instagram. Yeah, yeah. It's probably been sponsored. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, that, that's... Um, you know, that idea of, you know, your brand is a, a, a combination of the million things that you do. Mm. Um, I, I think that's really interesting. And something that you guys have done a lot of um, in quite a pioneering way are those partnerships mm. as well, like using the resources and the um, uh, existing awareness mm. of these bigger brands to mm. do some interesting things. Mm. Can, can we go back to some of the first ones, like the Razine, which mm. um, that that was really pioneering mm. and um, and going to this day really strong. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, probably 15 years uh, long relationship. Uh, and Razine were the first um, company that we partnered with in, in any sort of way. And it was weird because we had, Razine and another paint company both approached us on the same day, which was really strange. <laughs> and yeah. Razine was the obvious choice for many reasons, partly because, uh, you know, they have a history of really being forward-thinking and creative. They were the you know, first people to put sunblock and paint, and they were the first people to mix paint and store. And so there was a lot of history there that we uh, really admired. And they totally got our first thoughts around our, our paint range straight away and and that's been a very long and happy relationship. But, yeah, it's about, you know, I'm not going to be mixing paint. I'm not going to start a factory to mix paint. I want to work with the people who make the best paint and bring my ideas to it and bring their expertise to it in terms of how do you actually make it, get it, you know, have it in the store, et cetera. Um, you know, I never wanted this to be a company where there's, like, masses of factories and thousands of employees, and I always thought it would be a better approach to find other companies who share with us um, 
value of ideas and and all the things that we hold dear who we think that we can work with and who can also bring to it a real skill in terms of making product and working with us to get that product to market so um and that's allowed us to go into many different areas in long term and short term long term licenses short term collaborations you know some projects like designed to last to be alive for a week and then you move on um, you know, we did a project, you know, you know, like Resine, we've been in business with them for probably 15 years, but last, uh, this winter just gone, uh, we did a collaboration with Blunt Umbrellas, who are another incredible company who really bring new ideas to what they do, totally different approach to umbrellas, and we did a collab with them where we applied our print to two different umbrellas, and that was intended to be in the market for one month, and I think, I think it was actually only in the market for about two weeks, because they just sold, but it's, you know, I'm not going to go out and start trying to make umbrellas from scratch. You know, somebody else has already done it and done it brilliantly. So why don't we just work with them? And so that is really how we've built the business and intend to continue to build the business by um, we create, we have the ideas. That's what we create. And that's a really hard bit. And then we work with people who know how to actually, you know, turn those ideas into reality, whether it be sunglasses or fine jewellery umbrellas paint what have you um and you know they bring their skills we bring our skills and together you create something greater than the sum of the parts on a good day yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like licensing ip in a way isn't it um but mm. but uh one area that would be really cool to look at is the sunglasses mm. which um you, you know like that is amazing the way that that business um mm. has has grown and um mm. the place it has in popular culture where you mm. have people like LeBron James, when he's yeah. celebrating the most amazing thing he's ever done in his yeah. life, winning winning the yeah. championship. That was a crazy, crazy week, wasn't it? For, for him, but also for us, because we were on that ride with him every day. He was Instagramming wearing his sunglasses. How do you, you know, I, don't, I suppose you can't probably roll it out in one answer, but, you know, how do you build those ideas that, that take something that is undifferentiated and differentiate it just through kind of, you know, the shapes and the ideas mm. and the imagery? Uh, you know, it, it all comes down to not being, uh, to not going, oh, close enough is good enough. I mean, that's, that's kind of it. It's not compromising. Really, I would say is the most important thing every day in, in what we do that, uh, you know, it's not going, oh, we can't, you, oh, you can't make the lenses flatter or bigger. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. We'll just have that funny little curved tinted lens that everybody else has and stick a logo on the temple, you know, that that sort of compromise is, is not something we ever allow. If you can't do it right and do it to the vision, then you don't do it. Um, and I think that's probably the difference. But also having a vision, an overall vision for the idea, you have being very clear on the ideas, very, very clear on the creative, not compromising on that. And... Um, and having a clear vision, not just for the product, but for where the brand and the product should sit and what it should mean and what it should say to people and how it should make people feel. Um, you know, what does the brand mean? What's, what do we want people to feel when they experience the brand in whatever form they experience it? And not compromising on that. And I think that's the key thing. And, you know, in the design business, you know, it's... I always think we're at the pointy end of the spear. You know, the design business, no matter what area you're in, you know, t 
typefaces we were talking about earlier or whatever. There's the ones at the pointy end of the spear who are actually going, without compromise, this is my vision and it's something new. And then, and you, you know, you have a hundred people doing that or a thousand or whatever. There's, you know, there's some people who work like that and then there's the others who trail behind and regurgitate old ideas. That's just the nature of that's the nature of the design business, and our point has always been we're at the pointy end. Whatever you guys do behind us, we don't care about, and uh, this is but this is our vision. And the way that you managed to bring that in store, so for the sunglasses, the bar that you built to mm. um, travel around to all yeah. of the stores, yeah. because you know, or else they're just sunglasses on a stand. So create the environment. Like, is yeah. it is it those kind create of- the experience? Selling into other selling, you know, the in-store experience is a funny one because if you if you have your own stores and you do it right, it's brilliant for the brand, and if you do it wrong, it hurts the brand. And ditto if you're selling into other people's stores, if it's in the right store, it enhances your brand. You know, if it's Barney's, say, and if you're in the wrong store, it hurts your brand. So at every and and yeah, then you've got the whole digital footprint as well. That if you do that right, it it's good for your brand. If you do it wrong. It hurts your brand. So every every decision along the way, where it's sold, how it's presented, what the experience is, what the product is, every single decision has to be made on is this in line with our vision for the brand or not, including who we sell it to and how it's presented in their stores. Um, and we're very almost militant around that. <laughs> I was really interested um, about that idea of uh, the utility um, clothing. Um the essay that you wrote for the business of fashion about your decision to no longer show at mm. New York Fashion Week. Mm. And, you know, that's been such a huge um, investment for the business over mm. the years, showing mm. for um, a, a long spell there. Yeah, 20 seasons. 20 seasons. Mm. And that's, that's, that's 10 Februarys that I've been in New York in minus 30 instead of in my backyard in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a very real sacrifice, but but also a sacrifice there is it means that a company that's based out of New Zealand, which is in the wrong hemisphere for uh, New York winter, has to create both summer and winter collections at the same time. And it means that you have to be running essentially two businesses that are the best in the world, best in the world on the northern hemisphere, best in the world on the southern hemisphere. And, you, you know, the, the amount of effort that you went to to um, to get there to then walk away from it as well because the world has moved on. How, how did that feel? And, like, you, you know, t- tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that. Mm. Um, yeah, well, yeah, first of all, working to both hemispheres is a pain in the neck, mm. um, but it's possible because, you know, we, we, um, and we, and we still sell into both hemispheres. We just sell and show, you know, present in a different way. Um, so, yeah, you are, and we do four, so we do four seasons a year. We do, um, yeah, four drops a year, three months apart. And, then for each of those, we have to think about northern and southern hemisphere. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's all hard. Mm. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But we've kind of, we've figured it out. We've been doing it a long time now and we kind of, you know, know our way around it. But yeah, um, working to both hemispheres, it is, yeah, that's not easy, but it's not impossible. And I think more and more it's becoming, it's actually becoming easier because seasons are kind of, seasonless in some ways now you know because everybody sells to everywhere um you know it might just be online but everybody's looking to every market um and in terms of 
the investment. Yeah, we showed 20 seasons at New York Fashion Week. Um, for the last three or four seasons, we've been playing around with the idea of does this model still work? Uh, and then last season we decided that there's that no, the model doesn't just doesn't make sense anymore. You know, the fashion show model was invented in like the, I mean, it really kind of came to popularity in the 50s. And I just read uh, Christian Dior's autobiography and he was talking about some showing that they'd done and you know, it was the 50s and there were like, you know, 50 people in the room, all industry people, and somebody snuck in, somebody was caught drawing and they got thrown out one yeah. season. And then another season, somebody had the cheek to sneak in a small camera and they, you know, virtually got arrested. And that, you know, that idea of shows were set up originally to show to present a collection to buyers who were allowed to write words but not take drawings. And then they would go and place their order and they'd get it six months later. And now, you know, for a long time now, like really for the last five years at least, shows have really been for the end consumer's eyeballs. That's who sees them. You have the, the end consumers seeing the product before it's even off the runway. It's not even, you know, sure you have the media in the room, but that's only 500 people. So a lot of the people who are seeing it, most of the people who are seeing it are your end consumer. And it's kind of stupid to get your end consumer all hyped up and excited about something and then go, now forget about it. Mm. Pretend you didn't see it. And we'll remind you about it in six months' time. I mean, it's just as a marketing concept, it's flawed. Yeah. And uh, so once that once shows really became very visible to the end consumer, they lost their purpose or their purpose had to be rewritten. And that's why a lot of you know, Burberry, a lot of brands are now – either not showing or showing in season and having it be an end consumer focused you know a consumer facing event rather than an industry facing event and showing the industry just i mean buyers haven't been going to shows for years they just go they don't have the time to go to a show and wait for half an hour until some celebrity chef arrives late or whatever you know they just want to get to the showroom place their order get to the next showroom so buyers never go to shows anyway so you know in terms of the buying Product goes to the showroom, the buyers come in and place, and then the end consumer, and then the you know the media see it in the press showroom, and the end consumer sees it when you're ready for them to see it, not six months before. <laughs> and and as they became less relevant to how business is done, they also became bigger events, and you, you know yes, these well, big I think kind that's of media where... celebrity um, red carpet shows. Yeah, and I think that's where they're relevant now. Mm, mm. So I think the relevance of shows is either. As a as a experience or a brand experience, you know, like Chanel taking a cruise ship full of, uh, you know, reporters and fashion fashion writers and bloggers to Cuba, you know, resort. I mean, yeah, they spend like God knows how much every single season. You either make it a spectacle and have it become a social event, um, or you do it. Uh, or you do it really small and kind of more punk rock, like somebody like Henry Holland would do it. Or you just have it consumer facing. You don't do it at all. I mean, the thing is, there's so many options. You know, there's so many options. But that, but that model that we that we did for a long time is no longer relevant. So either you do it really small, or you do it really big, or you do it in a totally different way. So um, you know, in terms of our marketing spend, spend we're actually spending even more this year in our marketing than we did when we were doing shows. But we're just spending it on different stuff and talking to the, talking to our customer and the industry in a different way. And it's so much better. I'm already loving it. Yeah, what does that What does that involve? Is that um, Is that a lot of air miles and a lot of uh, events? Yeah, with the, your this year I'm going to be flying even more than I 
used to. So this year I'll probably do a quarter of a million kilometers. Last year it was like 200,000. But this is, it's really about creating content now. That's a big part of it. So, you know, when so much of how you speak to people is, you know, through your digital presence, you've got to have interesting things to show and to talk about. So, uh, yeah, we were in LA last week and we did three shoots in two days for different things, couple for jewellery and one for eyewear. Oh, actually four shoots because we did some for ready-to-wear as well. So, um, you know, it's about just create still having great ideas, executing them in a different way, not necessarily 33 girls walking down a runway for eight minutes. Because that's, you know, there's just more exciting ways to do it now. At the exact same time that all of the other designers are also doing the exact same thing. It's like shouting while everyone else is shouting. That's exactly it. You know, fashion weeks kind of are like that, aren't mm-hmm. they? Yeah, shouting while everyone else is shouting. I like that. Do you have um, kind of heroes in business or um, mentors? Because you do a lot of collaborating with, you, you know, really um, big brands. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm really interested in the mechanics of that. Like, how do you work with a anthropology or a Uniqlo? And um, how do you keep, keep kind of um, keep your own outcomes <laughs> good yeah. in those situations? Only work with people who get it. That's the, that's the most crucial thing. Um, that's kind of my motto that I run the business by. And you know, you know in the first five seconds whether somebody gets it or not. Um, so, you know, we only work with people who, who get it, get the vision, share the vision. Um, and that means that, there's, you know, there's no compromises. Um, because, yeah, when you go into arrangements with companies – I'm sure it happens all the time. The designer goes in and goes, this is my vision. And they go, yeah, but you have to do it in, in Navy and it has to be a bit longer or whatever. Um, and obviously we listen to what our partners say, but we only work with partners who we think have something good to say. So, you know, we're never having to have those like hair pulling, teeth grinding conversations where it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm in the room with these nincompoops mm. who are telling me that we need to do that because it'll sell we never have to have those conversations and so that just comes down to being very careful with who you get married to in the first place so you don't have to have those arguments what are some things that you um kind of wish you'd worked out earlier like you know there there are those moments where you're like oh man i've been doing this the not not the best way. <laughs> oh, you know, in any business, you have those every day. You think, oh my god, why did I do that? The trust your instinct. I think is the most important thing. Any time that we've done something that didn't work out well, my instinct had always been there in the first place. My that little voice in the back of your head going, "This is bad. This is bad. Don't do this. You shouldn't do this." And then, and then for some reason, you do it, and then when it turns to, sh- you know. Turns to crap. You go. I kind of knew that was going to happen. So I think my number one thing is I always listen to my instinct. Now I make decisions very quickly. I get the information. Listen. Listen to a few voices who I respect, and listen to my intuition and make the decision based on that. And uh, it very seldom puts me wrong. And if I can't, and if I'm not hearing the answer, I sleep on it. Or I just put it aside. Just go. No, I'm not making a decision on that this week. Talk to me next week. Um, you know, take the time when you need it. There's no pressure. There's no gun at my back. 
And if it's and if I'm not ready to make the decision, then pass. Um, but having said that, I normally make decisions very, very quickly. And they're always based around just what I feel about the question. Mm. Not what other people are, you know, I take advice. I have lots of people I talk to. But if it just feels wrong, I trust that over human, other human beings. And do, do you have kind of like long-term strategies you're working to? Like, for example, with Topshop. So as a maker of clothes, um, you, you know, uh, people like Topshop are the enemy for smaller producers. And so to have actually kind of like co-opted them and become part of the ownership structure and bringing that force into New Zealand that wasn't here before you brought it in, was that a strategic thing to not be kind of cannibalized from below or be part of the be part of the new order like yeah sometimes it's better to work with than work against right mm, mm. pretty much you know there's you've just got to figure out where you sit in it and you know somebody was saying to me the other day they were thinking of starting a, a new thing and they're going oh but I'm not sure because you know does the world really need more clothes I'm like no the world doesn't need more clothes so only do it if you've really got something unique to say mm. uh, because yeah you've got yeah, you've got the H&Ms and Topshops and Uniqlo's over here, and then you've got the, you know, a different field, but just as big. You've got the Pratas and whatnot over here, and then you've got the, yeah. So if you're going to be a small a designer on a small scale, there's still possibilities there. Mm. Of course you can still do it, but you just got to have something unique to say. And also the other thing is none of it's easy at any level. Mm. So, you know, go in there knowing that. Yeah, it's um, there's still nobody knows what they don't, you know, what isn't out there. No, there's nobody going. Oh, what we really need is is this. You got to, as the creative person, as the person whose job it is to have the ideas, it's your responsibility to go. This is what I think. I truly believe in it, and I think there's an audience for it, and give it your best shot. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, people. Um, but. If you're just doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, it's probably not going to. And you've got to have a different point of view at some level, the product or how you take it to market or something. There's always, not every idea has been thought of. There's, you know, there's a million different ways into the market. you just got to, I don't know, have, have a good idea. Yeah, there's always room for someone to be excellent. Of course, there's yeah. always room for something new. Always. The, the whole the whole media is, is built on it. and yeah it's, it's like a, a final thought there like you know what what's next for you guys is um uh the you, you know the recent um in, innovations that you guys have brought out um you, you know you've um released um perfume ranges yes. and uh you, you know play park um the store in Newmarket um has this wonderful kind of concept of the fifteen dollar to the fifteen thousand dollar purchases in there um is international retail a thing or what What's next on the on the board for you guys? Yeah, there's um, I mean we're very picky about what we take on, and I don't like to have lots of big projects going on. So, um, yeah, the last big new project we we released was the fragrance, which was a year and a bit ago, and we continue to put new fragrances out all the time. We've just launched one last uh, last month and got another one beginning of next year probably. Um, but yeah, you I. I there's, there's only so many areas that I feel comfortable working in, and I've pretty much covered everything now. There might be one or two new things I could do, but only if the right people uh, you know, are partnering with me. Um, so it's really about 
uh, refining what we've already got, continuing to really uh, question the ideas and only put out there what we think is really, uh, you know, good. Uh, retail, yeah, there's always room for retail to grow. We've got a couple of things going on at the moment, so um, here and internationally. So that should be started to happen end of this year, beginning of next year. Um, but you know the company's really—it's a great size. It's—it's it's exciting. Uh, we have the opportunity to create all the ideas that we have. Um, my intention was never for this to be, you know, like 150 stores globally kind of company. And we've had plenty of offers to work with us to take it to that kind of brand. But you know, I always any big business decisions I always lay against the template of what's important to me as a human. As a mother, as a wife, as you know, as somebody who likes to have a Sunday off, you know, and so if it doesn't fit within the template of what I want my life to be now and in five years and in ten years' time, then I don't do it. And also, if it doesn't fit against my template of what I think the brand stands for and should be. Ah, that's so interesting to to hear how you define success like that um, mm. and, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming in and chatting to us today it's re- really fascinating and yeah look like w- always so much new and looking forward to it thank you so much Simon pleasure you've been listening to Business is Boring presented by Simon Pound and brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.